You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. We've all had to make them at some point in our lives. We grab a shoebox, some glue and construction paper, and we build a little tableau inside for a school project. Maybe it depicts a particular scene from a book that we've read, or an important moment in history. And when we're done, we stand in front of the class and tell everyone about what we've made. And honestly, it can't be over fast enough, can it? There is little else that's more awkward than telling your classmates about the action figures and paper trees that you've glued inside of a shoebox. But from the 15th to the 19th centuries, people used to make a living with their tiny dioramas. Folks would flock to their stands in the streets to have a look for themselves. But they weren't called dioramas back then. They were called raries. The origin of the word rary most likely stems from the word rarity. They were, in a sense, tiny cabinets of curiosities. But these weren't collections of disparate objects. Those who operated them back then called them peep shows, long before that term gained a more risque definition. During the 1400s, Italian artist Leon Battista Alberti painted beautiful pictures, which he placed inside a box. The viewers would look through a small aperture on the outside and see sunny day scenes turn into night scenes with the moon and stars in the sky. Scholars today believe the images may have been partially transparent, where certain parts of the pictures would appear while others would be hidden depending on how they were lit inside the box. In fact, it's also possible that Alberti's box is one of the earliest types of projectors, or magic lanterns, which would shine light through a lens onto a glass slide with a picture on it in order to project it onto the wall. But raries were a little different. They were comprised of ornate wooden boxes, which were subdivided into compartments inside, and within each little box was a scene. Sometimes it was an illustrated picture of a landscape or a notable event. Other times, the cell held a three-dimensional tableau constructed of paper and other materials. On the exterior of the boxes, there were viewing holes, through which spectators could watch as the rary operator would pull a string and move the pictures around. He also told stories to breathe life into these static images. Before we had Nickelodeons and motion pictures, we had raries. These kinds of peep shows actually became most popular in Holland during the 1600s. Some artists went so far as to place biconvex lenses over the viewing holes to exaggerate the depth of the images inside. Eventually, glass slides and translucent illustrations were melded with candlelight. Suddenly, scenes set during the day could change to night simply by moving the candle in a certain way. This was how raries gave way to magic lantern shows later on. During the early 1900s, Japan even got in on the rary craze with boxes they called, appropriately, Holland machines. 
Raris had actually been in Japan since the 1640s after the Dutch had gifted one to the Shogun of the time. But they didn't gain steam with the Japanese artists until around the 18th century, after the Chinese had started working with them as well. But not everybody enjoyed the whimsy of the rari. According to an article in a British newspaper from 1803, a soldier had paid a halfpenny to take a peek inside a rari that had been set up on a Lancaster bridge in Stockport. As he gazed upon pictures of beautiful cities from all over the world, the showman explained what he was seeing. He said, There is the famous city of Paris. You can see the great Bonaparte haranguing his troops for the invasion of England. The soldier was incensed. He loathed Napoleon and his men. In a fit of anger, he hoisted the rari box and hurled it over the bridge. The showman, though, did not skip a beat and continued to say, There, and now you see Bonaparte and his troops drowning and be damned to them. I guess everyone's a critic. Curious, isn't it? Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
It's hard to know what a job is going to be like until you start working there. An interview isn't enough, and neither is reading online reviews. To really get a feel for a company and its culture, you have to punch the clock. In 1861, a young man named Sam thought that he had found a job that would fulfill him and give him purpose. Instead, he quickly realized that it was nothing but a waste of time and a death sentence. Sam was from Missouri, a border state that facilitated both sides of the Civil War. But it was also a slave state, and its governor, Claiborne Fox Jackson, was decidedly pro-slavery. He'd been born into a wealthy family of slaveholders and had worked to push Missouri towards secession against the Union. As for Sam, well, he hadn't planned on taking any part in the Civil War at first. He'd been a riverboat captain, navigating the Mississippi until Union forces eventually shut it down. With no job, he went back home to figure out what was next for him. He was almost drafted by the Union one day while he and his friends had been relaxing near their hometown levee. They had been stopped by Union soldiers who brought them to St. Louis for the purpose of piloting ships up the Missouri River. The district commander had been giving the boys the rundown when he suddenly left to attend to two young ladies who were waiting nearby. Sam and his friends snuck out while nobody was looking and ran straight back to their hometown of Hannibal. Now at home and safe, Sam soon read the governor's call for volunteers in his local paper. Fox wanted young men to join the Confederate Army and take on the Union forces that were invading Missouri, and that included Sam's hometown. And so Sam signed up, along with 14 other men looking to support their governor and their state from the Union invasion. In the summer of 1861, Sam loaded up a mule with a valise, two blankets, a carpet bag, a quilt, a rifle, 20 yards of rope, a frying pan, and an umbrella before heading out to meet Colonel John Rawls, a veteran of the Mexican-American War. Rawls was a true and tried Confederate who gave Sam and his companions an impassioned speech about duty and honor and then made them swear on a Bible to defend Missouri to the death. But his words fell on deaf ears. These were kids, barely in their 20s, who had signed up thinking that they would be heroes. Instead, they were more like college freshmen let loose on their own for the first time in their lives. They shunned responsibility and fought over chores. Whenever they heard that Union troops might be in the area, they hid from battle. Until one night when they finally got the killer instinct Colonel Rawls had been hoping for. A stranger had come into their camp, hidden by the darkness. Sam shot him. His fellow troops soon followed. When the gunpowder had cleared, they realized that they hadn't killed a Union soldier. They'd murdered an innocent, unarmed man. The boys continued to camp and patrol the area, almost coming face to face with a formidable regiment commanded by none other than Ulysses S. Grant. But they quickly retreated and decided that war just wasn't for them. Sam ran off to St. Louis where his sister lived and stayed there until his brother came calling with a job opportunity out west. He needed someone to help him with his new duties as secretary to the governor of the Nevada Territory, a position that had been appointed by President Lincoln himself. Sam jumped at the chance and hightailed it out of Missouri until the end of the war. By then, he'd been long forgotten, at least under his given name, of Samuel Clemens. Soon, everybody would know him as humorist and author Mark Twain. But they wouldn't know that for two awful weeks in 1861, the beloved writer from Missouri had cosplayed as a Confederate soldier. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works, I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show, and you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. 
And until next time, stay curious.